is sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. The American people have for a long time been frustrated with Washington, frustrated that too many, too many elected officials don't follow through on their promises, and, and, and they want us to do what we said we would do. Can I, be, can I tell you something? Yeah, you just said Without it's Without a wall, these are only areas where you have the walls. We want to do Where this. you have walls, Chuck, it's effective. We, where you don't have walls, it is not effective. Sure, unfortunately, that the president choose to shut down the government, that we have a Trump shutdown as a Christmas present. Now, I personally hope we don't have a shutdown, but I think the president is absolutely right to say the American people want the border secured. It's the right thing to do. Because of the fact that he said, I'm willing to shoulder it, he's putting it squarely on them to say, I'm not joking, I'm not going to blink, and this is what you're dealing with. And I, I actually think it's gonna work well for him. And now, Stacey Washington. Hello, welcome to the program. Um, I am so glad to be with you, and we have so much more to discuss here on the show today. What we're going to get into is uh, Ted Cruz actually says Nancy Pelosi's afraid, and I love his commentary here. And then we're going to talk about the secret recording case, federal judge ruling in favor of James O'Keefe and Project Veritas, and we're going to take your calls all hour. I'm interested in getting your feedback on the Kevin Hart issue and so many other things. So 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. We have the best listeners in the world here at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. And we're so excited to have you with us today. Uh, let's go to Katrina in Texas. She's calling about uh, Kevin Hart. Hey, Katrina, thanks for calling the show. Hi, Stacey. How are you? First, I just want to say you're just such a phenomenal woman, and I can see that you are certainly in the spirit in regard to God, our Savior. I just commend you so much. But when you Thank were you. speaking earlier in regard to Kevin Hart, you spoke on um, meeting with, you know, the fitted pan scenes and, you know, the computer, the laptop thing. I kind of don't want to go into it too much in trying to hurry. But you are so right. It just takes me to the time in the Bible in Kings of Ahab and Jezebel. And Ahab did not have a spine, and the nation was perverted. And I try to tell people so many times, and say, you know what? You guys are so blind as to what's going on around here. You're concerned about skin tones and all these things going on, and it's just a veil. The enemy has your eyes veiled. You need to see the times that we're in, the crisis, our crisis returning, and so many men, instead of them standing up, and I'm not saying all Christian men, my husband and I were Christian, but mm -hmm. all Christian men are not this way. But many of them just don't have the spine to stand up for what's right. And so all this perversion, with all, you know, with the television, the radios, and all these things have crept in. And so they're so eager to attack anyone that's on the right that's mm -hmm. trying to stand up for what's truly going on. So I just wanted to say that. You're just a phenomenal woman. Thank you so much, Katrina. I, I really humbly accept that, and, and I pray that God will continue to use me here. And I, I echo your comments. Thank you for kind of seconding that because I'm, I'm starting to get a little like, you know how it, at first you're annoyed, but you just ignore it. But I'm starting to notice this more and more and more with men with these kind of feminized voices, men who don't seem like they're interested in the, the true role of men, which is leadership and standing out in front. And I, I know I, I've even gotten emails to the effect, well, you're, you're outside of what you should do because you're working on radio and telling people your opinions when you should be at home taking care of your family. 
I actually work out of my home. I do take care of my family. I cook dinner every night. I'm very, very, very much in a traditional role. And I'm very submitted to my husband. He's the head of our household. I also do this radio show, but it does not interfere with what I can do. And, I, and my husband approves of this. He supports this work. But it, we get outside of that in these conversations about what I'm doing because I'm married to a man, an actual man's man, wherein I'm seeing a lot of men out in the culture who are not, they're just not manly. And I know that for some people, they'll say, well, some men aren't as manly as others. Okay, fine. Not everybody's going to be a man's man, you know, Clint Eastwood type, you know, that archetypal thing that we've seen in Hollywood before. But women desire men to be men, not to be male-ish or to be somewhat more manly than regular women, but for them to be male, manly, manly, for them to be men. And I just keep seeing this over and over again where it is becoming so like, first of all, just notice if you go by the playgrounds, how many of the stay-at-home dads are out there? And no offense to you if you're a stay-at-home dad, you know, God bless you. This isn't about you in particular, but the proliferation of men who would prefer to stay home and watch children while their wives go out and earn all the money and put all of the, the, the food on the table, that's not godly. That is not godly. So in your circumstance, you're submitted to God. That's what you have going on. I'm not going to come, you know, disregard my opinion. But it's not what I see God calling men to do in the Bible. It's not what I see him calling men to do in our culture. And it, I don't, I care nothing for labels like being a feminist or anything like that. I care about more of us realizing our true God-given potential and the purpose that he has for our lives and us being able to walk that out imperfectly because we are people and we're sinful and we, we need the savior. So we're never going to be that, oh, you know what? He's, that person's perfect. And I'm just as guilty as anybody else of you know, someone, you know, crossing me. And then I'm like, well, that's not Christian. You know, the first thing you think is how could they do that? They're a Christian. Well, they're a human being and people make mistakes. We all do. We, we are all going to make mistakes. We have to hold ourselves to as high a standard as possible. The mistakes can't be excused or written off as, well, you know what, we're all human. We're going to make mistakes. And then, you know, don't pay attention to it. Don't strive for better. But I feel like we're way outside of what God has for us culturally, looking at the way we treat men, the way we talk about men, and the way that in response to that, uh, a lot of men in the younger generation of people coming up, the millennials, the, especially the younger end of the millennials, the men are saying, look, I, you know, can't beat them, join them. They, they don't want that role specifically, but they're filling the role that's left for them because we've got all these warrior chicks, all these wonder women running around, you know, this is what you have to do. This is who you have to be dictating everything. That's not the role that God has for us in the Bible. We're not to be dictating to our men what they're to do and what they're not to do. That is not our role. And uh, I, I recommend to you Hidden Heart Ministry. Let me get the let me get the Hidden Heart Ministry website for you real quick. It's hiddenheartministry.org. And if you go there, you'll find classes and those are all local, okay? But maybe you want to go to the hiddenheartministry.org website and locate um, the materials to host a class in your area. And what I would, what I would suggest is that if you're married 
or if you're single and you're marriage minded, or if you're single and you just want to know what God's word says about the roles of men and women and how beautifully he's created it for us to complement each other. And that when we get in our right roles, how he can bless that, then order the materials. Um, you can actually take the study in the classes anywhere. They have a video series that goes with it and you can take it. It's amazing. The Bible says we're destroyed because we have improper knowledge. We don't have knowledge. We're destroyed for a lack of knowledge. It's so true. This is something that it it's just so fundamental. I just wish every woman who was graduating from college would take this this uh, this course to save themselves the heartache of trying to go our own way and then realizing that our own way is horribly flawed and will never work. And finally coming broken to the realization that we need God's way and then having to put the pieces back together. They actually have a special going right now through November for the new abridged version of the Cry of the Hidden Heart Bible Study, which is a 13-week course that they've condensed into eight weeks so that you can get through it more quickly. And you can do it one-on-one with another friend, or you can do it uh, as a group. And the group Bible study is so rich and so fulfilling. Um, It can really give you a godly perspective on First of all, what marriage is, not just for you, but for other people who are, who are married, other women who are married, and also how God can work. Some of the questions that are condensed into this new eight chapters of the cry of the hidden heart abridged address some of life's biggest questions, like why God created women? What is God's big picture for marriage? Why is marriage important? How does marriage work, the complementary nature of godly marriage? How can I share God's plan with the next generation? So you can call Karen Bacon to get the copies that you need, or you can actually buy it online at their store. And I just can't recommend it enough. If you want to see radical changes in your home and your marriage, take this Bible study and then email me. (laughs) Comment on the Facebook page. Let me know. If you take this study and it does nothing for you, I want to know that too. I want to know how that's possible. I want to know what, what your experience is. It's, it's, it's that good. It's like me knowing about the best lasagna in the world and telling you where to get it. And then you going and getting it and realizing it's the best lasagna in the world and us agreeing on it. That's the only way I can see um, that, that actually going on. Like you're, you're going to love it. So right now I want to pivot over to Ted Cruz saying Pelosi is scared. Now he's doing an interview and we got this audio clip of him talking about the interaction that we saw between President Trump, Schumer, and Pelosi yesterday, where the president, he totally acquitted himself like a boss. He handled his business with those two. There's a couple of things that are really funny about President Trump, and I mean funny, ironic. He tends to uh, really be just the same as he has always been. And I say that meaning the public persona we've seen of him, he hasn't changed a bit. He's tried to temper himself a little bit in his speech and, and, you know, his brash off the cuff commentary, but for the most part, and I mean like what looks to me like 98, 99%, he's the same. He is the same as he was back when he was actually writing checks to Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi for their campaigns. They've gotten money from Donald Trump. They have been to events with Donald Trump. They've been to Trump Tower. They've been to the penthouse. They've you know, been to Mar-a-Lago. These are people who used to think Donald Trump was the bee's knees. 
the the whipped cream on the proverbial cheesecake. He was the 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 cause du jour. He was he was cool. Now that he's the president and he's the same, they can't seem to deal with it. They're like all worked up and flummoxed. Funny, they didn't want the cameras rolling while they were talking because Donald Trump was making points that they didn't want out in the media. So here's Ted Cruz talking about how he feels Pelosi is scared. It's number four. You know, I watched that whole exchange with the president, Chuck Schumer, and Nancy Pelosi. And I, I think the president was terrific that he was standing up and saying, we're going to keep our promise. We're going to secure the border. We're going to build the wall. And I'll tell you, one of the surest indications of how unhappy the Democrats were in that exchange is over and over again, Nancy Pelosi says, can we turn the TV cameras off? We're not supposed <laughs> to be doing this publicly. Right. You can tell they're on the losing end of the argument when she's scared that cameras are showing that she and the Democrats are for open borders, and the president is fighting to do what the American people want, which is secure the border, build the wall, and keep our country safe. Hmm. <laughs> so, you know, and, and obviously, Nancy Pelosi coming in as the, the, you know, leader, she'll be the leader in the House, um, and having that power again, she's very excited about it, and she's very much in the mindset that it belongs to her, and that it's, it's something that she's earned. But she's going to be presiding over a conference of Democrats that are the most divided that I think we've seen them. The Democrats historically have been much more unified and much more willing to put down their personal wants and needs for policy or legislation or what have you in favor of the winning of their their cause overall as Democrats. But now there's a deep schism in the Democratic side of the aisle where they are literally uh, you know, at each other's throats over who can be the most progressive. And Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and Harry Reid and others who have been leaders, you know, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, et cetera, they've all been instrumental in bringing about this new ideological shift that puts Democrats to the left of themselves, that has younger Democrats crying out and clamoring for more government to the point where they're actually frightening Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and, and others in leadership. But this is a demon of their own making. And so while it's fun to see them actually have to deal with this and actually come to, to grips with what they've wrought, it's also difficult because the, what they've wrought is something that's bad for America. And we want good things for America. We want good leadership. And we're not gonna get that when Nancy Pelosi takes the gavel. I think Ted Cruz is right there. We'll have more for you. Children spending seven hours on smartphones and tablets have less brain function and more. We'll take your calls. Uh, 866-963-2037. Be right back. Are you still stuck on the healthcare roller coaster? Still paying those high premiums? And strapped into huge deductibles? not knowing what's around the next turn? Well, then let me tell you about a sound, sensible healthcare choice that really is affordable. It's MediShare, the healthcare sharing solution people like you have been trusting in for more than 25 years. MediShare members report saving around $500 a month on their healthcare costs, and they never pay for things they don't believe in. Time to say goodbye to that healthcare roller coaster and say hello to MediShare. Call star star 345 to find out how much you can save on your healthcare. MediShare, call star star 345. Message and data rates may apply. 
That's star star three four five. This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. A new documentary reminds us how intrusive social media can be in our lives and how personal privacy is quickly vanishing. Kyle Smith writes about this in a recent op-ed and mentions the documentary, The Creepy Line. The name of the documentary is taken from a comment by Google CEO Eric Schmidt. He has a nickname for the invasive nature of his company. He says Google policy on a lot of things is to get right up to the creepy line and not cross it. In the film, Peter Schweitzer illustrates how your search history gives Google an enormous amount of information. Of course, this is supposed to tell Google and other advertisers what you like to buy. But this enormous cache of information also tells anyone who has access to all of it all sorts of things about you and your personal taste. Google also has noticed that you would leave the search engine in order to surf the Internet, so it developed the browser Chrome. That means that everything you do online through Chrome is also collected in this cache of information at Google. But that's not enough. Google wants to know what you're doing even when you're not online. So there's Android that uploads a complete picture of what you have been doing when you're not online. Smith concludes it's a surveillance business model. Google Maps, Google Docs, Gmail. Google knows more about you than your spouse does. Over the last few months, Congress has shown some interest in understanding how Google and other big tech firms make their editorial decisions. But Smith also reminds us that the federal government is a heavy user of Google products and has shown little interest in oversight. If Google isn't going to self-police itself, and if Congress isn't going to take any meaningful action, then we as consumers need to be wary of how Google and others use us and our information. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. You can find out more at urbanfamilytalk.com. You can also find Urban Family Talk on Facebook. Um, and also hit the, the share and subscribe and all those different buttons, the like buttons. Uh, do that to help us grow our presence on Facebook. As, as, as interesting as the times are now on Facebook, uh, we'll, we'll still, we're still there. We'll still do our best to be there and to contribute as long as we possibly can. Um, so I, I found this story about children who spend seven hours or more. So we, we have three of these. We have that one. We have the secret recording case where the federal judge ruled in favor of James O'Keefe and Project Veritas on their right to be able to record you know, using these button cams, etc. And then this piece that's over at the stream. And this piece is about the marriage gap and a few other things, but specifically Republicans being more likely to be happily married than Democrats. And this is a new study that was done that revealed this information. So... We'll delve into that first, and then we'll get into this really frightening story about the children and the hours on the Internet. So first of all, this is not news. It's not new news that this study has shown that there's a huge marriage gap. This is an American Family Survey sponsored by the Deseret News and the Center for the Study of Elections and Democracy. And it was released earlier this year, and it found that there's a partisan divide in both marriage and family life. Now, 
you may have noticed this. I certainly have. And anecdotally speaking, obviously, because anything I'm telling you about what I've observed is anecdotal. It's not a study. It's not peer-reviewed research or anything like that. But anecdotally speaking, I noticed that a lot of, uh, I know plenty, I shouldn't say a lot. I know plenty of, of people who are Democrats who are married and they have kids. So this isn't saying that Democrats, people who are on the left side of the aisle don't marry and have children. But what they are finding is that there's a bit of a gap in the number of people who are married and are happily married. And so W. Bradford Wilcox is the director of the National Marriage Project at the University of Virginia. He's a senior fellow at the Institute for Family Studies, and he serves on the advisory board of the American Family Survey. Wilcox was struck by four key points while reading a report based on the survey. So he wrote an article about it, and this is super important for us because it gives us a peek into, have you ever just sat up and thought, why are Democrats so obsessed with this particular issue or that particular issue? Why do they constantly look for government to solve this problem as opposed to it being solved in the home? Well, if you have an intact family and you're happily married, then you know that a majority of the problems that you're experiencing can be taken care of by making better decisions in the home. But if you are a single parent, divorced, um, single period, you know, a, a person who is a professional but single and living alone and you've kind of resigned yourself to the fact that you may not get married or you don't want to get married, then you need someone who's going to take on that help meet role. And often the person you look to, the entity that you look to is the government. So there's a marriage gap when it comes to supporting Donald Trump. The gap is almost as large as the gender and education gaps. And it's particularly true for men. Half of married men approve of Trump. Only 40% or less of unmarried men approve of Trump. 35% or more of married women approve of Trump. Only 31% or less of unmarried women approve of Trump. And this is largely ignored by the media. Second, Republicans and conservatives really do live the values that they profess. Republicans are 17 percentage points more likely to be married Conservatives are nine points less likely to say their relationship is in trouble, and Republicans are 21 percentage points more likely to say being married is essential to living a fulfilling life. Other essentials include having kids, being part of a religious community, community engagement, a rewarding job. In each area, Republicans were more likely to say they were essential than Democrats or independents. So, his quote is, there shouldn't be a partisan divide in institutionalizing lifelong love, but here we are. Now, third, the results conflict with the widespread belief that the marriage gap is mostly a matter of education and income. The survey results suggest something completely different, that the divide is not that simple. It's also about culture and it's about community. Remember, we've talked about this on the show before. If your culture is one that is antithetical to, to work and participating in the American dream, then it doesn't matter who the president is, you're not going to be successful because your behavioral choices are such that they're preventing you from accessing what is readily available to everyone else in this country who is culturally normative, and that is the opportunity. Opportunities are constantly flowing all around us and coming at us. Opportunities, there can be so many that you can't take advantage of them all. But if culturally you're outside of the norm, 
you're setting yourself up to be in a position where even if you want to access the opportunities and you maybe even have the, the brain power and et cetera, but you're culturally not normative, you are not going to be able to participate. You can't access the, the opportunities. So third, uh, we were talking about the, the survey suggesting that the divide is not that simple, but the marriage gap and the education gap are equal at 17 percentage points. His research also suggests that religiosity is as good a predictor of where you land on the marriage divide as is education. So when we think about the marriage divide, we need to think about the three C's, cash, culture, and community. Then they talk about egalitarianism, where in, in this case, it means a 50-50 model of marriage. According to his research, having a 50-50 model of marriage is not essential for a happy, fulfilled marriage. Some argue that upper middle class marriages today are more successful than working class or poor couples because they have a 50-50 model in marriage, but Wilcox doesn't agree. Why is it that Republicans and conservatives generally report more marital happiness and stability than do other Americans? Is it because they're more egalitarian? I doubt that. He says it's much more likely that it's because of a higher level of joint marital commitment on the part of Republican spouses. He points out that the 50-50 model of marriage isn't a necessary ingredient for making a good marriage. And I will agree with that, and I'll even go a step further. In the Bible, we're called for the 100-100 concept. That's where a husband is giving a 100% of himself, the wife is giving 100% of herself, and they're in union with God who always gives more than 100%. That's how you have a successful marriage. And that's why he's, he's, as hard as he tries, he can't get away from the fact that high levels of religiosity, his term, not mine, coupled with a high commitment to the actual union and maintaining it, yield better marital results, happier marriages and marriages that last longer. So he found that Republicans are more likely to be married, to value marriage and to be in no drama relationships. The patterns may also in part point to generational, racial, religious and socioeconomic differences between the parties. But even in light of all of that, he's not making strong claims about causality when it comes to partisanship and marriage. And that this can't be something that we kind of gloat over as, you know, I, I myself happen to be on the right. I can't gloat over it because millions of Americans who are unhappy in their marriages or are not married at all and don't view marriage as something that is attainable for them, those people are ripe for, you know, being pulled into the idea that the government can fix all of their problems. The government is the de facto spouse of people who are chronically single if they're not doing well financially, because they have to access government programs to make it. A spouse, whether both work or not, you're going to have a higher level of success when men are married. That is also statistically shown to be the truth that married men earn more money than their single counterparts of similar age and educational background and work experience because married men have a much stronger drive to succeed because they have a whole group of people that they're caring for through their work efforts, which drives them to work extra hours, work longer hours, and to seek more education and uh, you know work accomplishment so that they can earn more money. Not to say that single men aren't driven, but on the whole, when you compare apples to apples, the married men are outperforming the single men because they have so much more to lose. They have so much more 
on their plates that they have to care for. It is not a good thing for us to have this weird separation between political parties where one political party is full of unhappy single people and people who are, um, you know, not, not able to fully access the American dream. And this is because they're, they're obviously there's a gap between the level of religion on the left and the right. One party booed God at their last, you know, uh, uh, convention. One party has stripped all mention of God from their party platform. One party has a persistently negative view of Israel, the nation, and the relationship between Israel and the United States. One party has a demonic and perverse view of human life and especially relishes the destruction of black lives in the womb. One party has a perverted view of mental illness and human sexuality. These things also are coupled with a one side of the aisle that is distinctly not as religious or God-fearing as the other side. Now, if you are a person who votes with the Democrats and you are religious and you're happily married, obviously you're within the, there's part of the study reflects that not all Democrats are unhappily married or, you know, anti-religion, but significantly fewer Democrats are marriage minded, happily married and religiously, um, you know, strong, religiously adherent than on the other side of the aisle. So the goal for us, obviously, is to get more Americans, regardless of their political affiliation, to adhere to this, this more traditional ethos where they're practicing Christianity, practicing their faith, go going forward and honoring God with their actions and having a stronger commitment to the marriages that they enter into. That's something that we, uh, we, have, we have to do. So turning to a little bit of entertainment that's not like a Debbie Downer, because there is so much other news here. I'm, I'm going to skip over some of that. Um, and we are going to get to the story about the children spending all the hours on the computer. But I want to talk a little bit about that there's obviously it's Christmas. And at Christmas, they usually have some movies come out. And one of the movies that has come out is Aquaman. Now, or I should say it's about to be issued. So right now they have people who have that early access to do the film reviews have had an opportunity to see Aquaman and they've put out some interesting uh, statements. Now, I'm not doing any spoilers, so don't worry about that. I found over at therap.com um, that they have a film review where James Wan, who I suppose is the director, they call his underwater epic outrageous and they say that it rewrites the superhero rules. Now, it's Jason Momoa, who is the uh, star of the show. It's directed by James Wan, who is also the director of Furious 7. And it ventures from a neon Tron-inspired Atlantis to ancient ruins straight out of Indiana Jones and then into a nightmare realm of evil swarming fish monsters. There are gigantic battles, um, crab people, bad guys riding armored sharks, and um, a day-glow rave octopus plays the drums while Aquaman fights for the throne of Atlantis in an underwater gladiator arena called the Ring of Fire. Wow, so every movie has to have Atlantis in it, I guess. Anyway, so the movie is big. It's one of those, you know, kind of blockbuster type films. And it has 
everything you can think of. Amber Heard wears a dress made out of domesticated jellyfish. Julie Andrews voices a Lovecraftian aquatic leviathan. Nicole Kid- Kidman eats a live goldfish. Willem Dafoe spins a trident so fast it creates an impenetrable saltwater shield. It sounds like the graphics are pretty, pretty stunning. Now, you've got Jason Momoa, who plays Aquaman, whose name when he's not Aquaman is Arthur Curry. And he's a beer-swilling underachiever who doesn't ever wear a shirt. And since his mom, Princess Atlanta, who's Kidman, was executed for falling in love with a human and having him, he deems himself unworthy of just about anything. So now he's got to finally accept that he's the one true king of Atlantis and that he's, you know, an actual superhero. Now, all of that being said, I haven't seen any reviews and I will go to the website that we've had shared with us by many, many of our listeners where you can get a review of the Christian uh, take on, on what's going on with this movie. I'm pretty sure we're going to go see it mainly because, uh, the kids have been eagerly anticipating it. So I will be reading the review with interest because I do, I do hope it, that this movie is, is good, clean family fun. Um, but it's, it's also an opportunity for us to kind of see what Hollywood is planning on doing with the superhero series that we're kind of in the middle of every one of these most recent movies, whether it's guardians of the galaxy, uh, the justice league thing with Batman and all that, Wonder Woman, um, the Avengers, all of these movies are in the middle of sequels. So it's it's like there's many more movies to come based on books and comic books, et cetera, and the whole universe, the Marvel universe and all that. And so I'm hoping this movie is is done well and that we're going to be able to see something that's interesting and, and entertaining and free of social justice garbage. We'll see. I'm not sure, but we'll see. Um. They're saying it's going to be one of the most crowded Christmas box offices in years. And everyone's talking about Julie Andrews having this surprise cameo in Aquaman. And, you know, Julia, Julie Andrews, I mean, that's iconic right there. It sounds like it's going to be pretty exciting. All right. So when we get back, we're going to have more for you. Last segment of the show. We'll take some calls. 866-963-2037. Best listening audience in radio. 866-963-2037. Stay there. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. Whenever a power-hungry activist wants to infringe upon religious liberty, they refer to the separation of church and state, an evil concept created by an activist judge to limit Christian participation in public life. While God does limit the spheres of influence controlled by the church and state, his limitations lead to more liberty. God is head overall and is unsurprised by the goings-on in our society and politics. He has ordained that free men would control their homes, the church, and the state. There is no separation. When godly men rule, the people rejoice. But when evildoers control a nation, citizens groan and wail. There is no substitute for the proper order of our lives and government under God's planning and direction. When Christians pull back, evil flourishes. The Bible mandates Christian influence in government, politics, 
and public life. It's up to us. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. Hi, this is Steve Tiber with 8 Days of Hope. We've been all over the country helping disaster victims who lose everything. It's truly a blessing. I really don't have the words to express. And yet they see a glimmer of hope when a volunteer shows up. Building the home, that's the second reason we're here. The number one reason is to share the gospel and and give them hope. It's everything that's right in America. I mean, it really represents the, the best that we have to offer. That's one of the main reasons for doing it, is being able to be the hands and feet of Jesus and coming out and working with so many wonderful volunteers. I just feel like it's important in this day and age to teach a child uh, how to serve. Please go to our website, 8daysofhope.com, and click on Get Involved. Submit your email address, and the next time we go anywhere with a disaster, we'll invite you to come along as well. I love coming in the job room because you can see these pieces of paper, they aren't just a piece of paper. Right. It's a family that's hurting, and it's a gospel opportunity. And you know, I just thank God, you know, for this moment. I mean, I'll be back in my home, and I know it's going to be awesome. Come love others with 8 Days of Hope. I'm Hank Weinblum with your Word of the Week, Hail and Farewell. Yet leaving something behind. Much of the past week was devoted to tributes to the 41st president, George H.W. Bush. Celebrate the president's legacy. Legacy can mean a couple of things. If you inherit money, that's a legacy. Bush 41 was a wealthy man, but that's not the legacy people are talking about. He left a simple yet profound legacy to his children, to his grandchildren, and to this country. And that legacy is? Service. A legacy can be the way you lived your life, the things you accomplished, the example you set for those who follow you. I just love the legacy he left. I love that. Legacy comes from Middle English and Old French having to do with the functions of an official of the church or government. And so the legacy of legacy is a way to acknowledge a life well lived. To honor the legacy of uh, President Bush and to show that we are his legacy. With your Word of the Week, Hank Weinblum, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Well, Republicans think the president's doing exactly what he said, and that's what we should be focused on. I I think when the president said to Senator Schumer, I'll gladly take that mantle, I think what he was saying is I'll gladly and proudly take the mantle of doing what we told the voters we were going to do, which is build a border security wall. So, uh, yeah, the Freedom Caucus in particular, we took a position last night, Tucker, we're going to support the president, the full five billion for the border security wall, and let's reform our asylum laws while we're at it, because that will address the problem. I think it's a, I think it's part our leadership not pushing hard enough and, and Paul not pushing hard enough. And I think it also is Democrats just Democrats are for open borders. Democrats want to abolish right. ICE. Their, their, their party's champion in the last election, Secretary Clinton. What did she run on a borderless hemisphere? So I think it's, it's all part of that. But the president today, I think, made it pretty darn clear he's going to stand firm and focus on doing what we were elected to do. And I always say we make this job too complicated. That's a pretty basic thing to focus on. Don't get too complicated. Just do what you were elected to do. And we were certainly elected to build a border security wall. Mm. What more can we say? That's Representative Jordan coming out strong, guns blazing about the border wall. And um, what, what else can we say? The guy is right. He's right. That's what they were elected to do. Don't forget it. Don't forget that we haven't forgotten it. Constituents want border security. Um, And, and, it's not just a Republican issue. There are plenty of people who aren't Republicans who see what's going on at the border and they are not only appalled by it, but they're absolutely 
horrified that we would see this type of crazy pants behavior going on and not do anything about it. So let's, let's not, let's not get it twisted. We need the border secure. The president has the ability to do it. Um, we sh- we should, we should make that happen. So now I want to get over to the story about the kids. And these, these are kind of stories that it's a, it's a little disheartening because the first thing that we have to understand is if they say children who spend seven hours or more on smartphones or, and tablets a day are showing signs that their brain cortex is thinning prematurely, that means there are kids who are spending that much time on it. Now, Apple has this new thing that they do. If you download the latest update, they have something called screen time. And you can go in and you can look and see how much time you're spending on your device. What we often find, I know talking with, with our kids' school where they have this one-to-one iPad thing, um, they have a lot of features that you have to kind of opt into to take advantage of. Blocking of websites, um, you know, screen time monitoring, et cetera, et cetera. And if you go with that, then you have a lot more information, but it takes time to get it done. It takes time to make it, you know, to fix up the websites that your kid can't get to, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually have a small list of items that we need to do with, with one of our kids' devices to make sure that, you know, she's being protected from unwanted content and, and also to manage her screen time. But this is information that we as parents, we, we just don't have any excuse for not paying attention and not governing ourselves accordingly. And so here's what the findings are. The findings show that children are at risk of deteriorating memory function, perception skills, and cognitive abilities. And this is a new major U.S. study. They spent $300 million of research funds, and it shows results of the effect of technology on kids. First, they went through the process of scanning the brains of 4,500 children. The scientists are in the process of following more than 11,000 9 to 10-year-olds over the course of a decade to see what the screen time does to their kids. Now, we already have a precursor to this. We know that there's concern about what happens to kids' brains because none of the people who created the iPhone have their kids in one-to-one programs. Their children aren't allowed to have iPhones. They made this product for us, but they don't have their own children using it. That's our first warning sign. So the researchers also determined that children who spend more than two hours a day of screen time scored lower on thinking and language tests. Two hours a day impacts test scores. The brain cortex is the outermost layer of neural tissue that processes information from the physical world. It is critical for cognitive functions such as perception, language, memory, and consciousness, but thins as we mature into old age. The difference was significant from participants who spent less time using smart devices. Dr. Gaya Dowling, an NIH doctor working on the project, cautioned against drawing a conclusion because they aren't completely sure it's being caused by the increased use of modern technology. They're not sure if it's, they're not absolutely sure if it's the screen time. They don't know if it's a bad thing. But what they can say is that the brains, what the brains look like of kids who spend a lot of time on screens, and it's not just one pattern. The scientists won't be able to draw a definitive outcome until they follow them over the course of several years. A 2014 study showed that there's a direct correlation between the thickness of the brain cortex and the IQ score. The cortex begins to thin after the age of five or six as a part of the normal aging process. And people with a significant increase in IQ 
do not have the expected cortical thinning and if people who have a significant decrease in IQ have exaggerated cortical thinning. So they have a major release of the initial data that's scheduled for early 2019. And I think that's going to be when the rubber meets the road because you'll be able to look at the data. You'll be able to kind of correlate a lot of what they're saying in their summary with what they found in the actual uh, data sets and kind of be able to dig in. So we'll open up the phone lines right now for some calls. Uh, we have 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. So then you've got the secret recording case from Project uh, Veritas. A federal judge has actually ruled in favor of James O'Keefe in this recording case. What's so interesting about this is that he's over and over again been smeared as some kind of provocateur and uh, con artist. And I've heard him speak in person and I have his book. And first of all, the book is very well done. And second of all, he's no con artist. He's someone who is really willing to chase after stories. He's, he's a classical journalist in the sense that this guy just, he just does a great job. Um, and because of that, he's been punished. So you've got U.S. District Chief Judge Patty B. Saris, and she says the right to record public officials secretly is protected by the First Amendment with reasonable caveats. She rejects the state's notion that public officials need space to work efficiently. Project Veritas has made First Amendment history, says James O'Keefe, with the summary judgment in this case being entered into our favor, PBA versus Conley, becomes the first case in United States history to hold that secretly recording government officials is protected by the First Amendment. Judge Saris, a Clinton appointee to the federal bench, federal bench, ruled that Massachusetts state law may not constitutionally prohibit the secret audio recording of government officials, including law enforcement officials performing their duties in public spaces, subject to reasonable time, manner, and place restrictions. This is not to say that police and government officials have no privacy interests. However, the diminished privacy interests of government officials performing their duties in public must be balanced by the First Amendment interests of news gathering and information dissemination. The ruling was in favor of two separate sets of plaintiffs, one of which live streamed footage of officers while they were performing their jobs, and the other, James O'Keefe, who was actually caught or, you know, he was using his cameras to catch politicians going against their constituents and engaging in illegal behavior. So Massachusetts law enacted in 1968 placed a general ban on taping wire and oral communications. The legislature said it was concerned with the rapid increase in use of modern electronic surveillance devices and those being a danger to citizens' privacy. But in October, Project Veritas exposed a staffer of the Andrew Gillum gubernatorial campaign as saying that Florida is an expletive state. In the same month, O'Keefe and Project Veritas revealed footage of Heidi Heitkamp and her staff exposing her as being far left despite her efforts to appeal to voters as being more moderate. So it's a win. And I particularly think it's a win because what we found is cameras, you get people's true behavior and it's not about catching this group or that group or saying these people are bad or you know no it's not what it is about is being utterly cognizant of the fact that human beings are going to 
fail and they're going to make mistakes. And having your word against their word has not been enough in the past to exonerate people who are innocent. And so it's good, it's good to have a ruling from someone who this, this woman is hardly a conservative. She's saying that it is in the public interest to have people operating in the public being able to be recorded or filmed reasonably, reasonably. So we'll see how far that goes. Um, we'll see what, if there's even, if there's even more that will come out of it. Um, I, I did, well, I don't know. I can't say whether or not they're going to appeal. Who knows? Um, but we'll see, we'll see what happens with it. So in addition, we also see uh, there's um, some more speculation on this story with Kevin Hart and moving on from Kevin Hart because remember that there was some discussion about Ellen DeGeneres possibly doing the Oscars. She's actually got some news bubbling about her over here at CNN, which I, this is kind of fascinating. She says she's considering ending her run on daytime talk. She's mulling wants to do what to do when her contract comes to an end in 2020. Now, this is often these stars will do this. They'll start talking about ending their show. And what they're really doing is they're negotiating for a better contract. She told the New York Times in a new interview, she's, you know, what, what am I going to do? She renewed her deal in 2016, but she says she was close to declining that would have kept her, declining the offer that would have kept her there past season 17. She says she's reportedly torn between advice given to her from two significant people in her life. Um, wow. She's won 57 daytime Emmys since its debut in 2003. I think, you know, I would obviously be happier if she ended the show. But who knows what she's actually going to do. I tend to not believe these stories where they're like, oh, she's not going to do, um, she's not going to, she's not going to do the show. Oprah Winfrey did that for like seven years. Every year, every time there was up for renewal, she was like, well, I think I can only do the show until, you know, this, this year. And then that year would come and go. And then she'd say she can only do it for another couple of years. And then she finally ended it. And then immediately started another show, just like the one she had before on her own network. So she's still doing shows still. I mean, same old, same old. And there's the big deal with Teresa May. And I, I've actually been feeling kind of sorry for her. Because she's, she's clearly not conservative enough. It's as if she tries to, you know, be moderate enough to win over the people on the opposing side, not understanding that they'll never be on her side. And so she oversaw this fantastic Brexit vote, but now they're not able to get a deal done because it seems as if she's literally just, um, she's mired down in indecision. And so that people on her side are, oh, she's got to, you know, we've got to keep her. We have to keep her there. And people who are against her, like they got their daggers out, let's get rid of her. And then, you know, you look around at what liberalism is doing to France and what Macron is going through with his, his leadership. He's begging to be left in power, begging for the, the people to stop rioting and et cetera, et cetera. And you can tell that's not the direction you want to go in. It seems like Theresa May would 
double down on her strengths as as a conservative and just go with it that she would have gotten some um like strength from spending time with Donald Trump. I know I know he's brash and people say, you know, that they find that off-putting, but he's also a winner. He won his election and liberals don't like him, but he has over 88% approval rating with the people in in his own constituency base, his voters. He can turn out 20,000 people to it just anywhere he plans on being for a rally, he can get 20,000 people there, even in small towns like Columbia. So Last story of the day, um, and this one, I, I can't believe how horrible it is. You got this middle school kid, and his last name is Trump, and he's been bullied for years. And so after being tormented daily at Delaware's Tolly Middle School, his parents changed his last name from Trump. Her last name is Trump, both parents. He says he hates himself, he hates his last name, and he feels sad all the time. He doesn't want to live feeling like that anymore. They said when the 45th president announced his candidacy, the little boy was in elementary school and he was being bullied relentlessly. But they thought, well, when he gets to middle school, it will stop. Well, he was being ridiculed and bullied for the fact his last name was Trump. They pulled him out of school and homeschooled him for a year, then put him in a new school. Same old, same old. They curse at him. They call him an idiot. They call him stupid. And the teachers try not to say his name in class. So they've changed his last name to his father's last name, which is Berto. Unbelievable. All right. That's the show for today. Good evening from the heartland. God bless you. Be back with you tomorrow. Tomorrow.